As we enter this new year, it's good to look back over this past year to see the victories, the triumphs on the one hand, right, the spiritual growth that has taken place, uh, but also the, the trials and difficulties, and sometimes it's painful to endure those things. It's never pleasant when we're going through them, but if it brings spiritual growth, then they have their proper purpose. As we enter 2023, uh, given the political system really around the world, given our culture and the, the, the depravity of our culture, the continual loss of our freedoms as Christians, I'm convinced our immense need is a greater boldness concerning the preaching and the advancement of the gospel. At a time when churches are letting their mouths be stopped up and modifying the message, this is a time when we need to be bold. Yea, even all Christians all too often are like Arctic rivers, frozen at the mouth when confronted with an opportunity to speak up for Christ or even just biblical truth. Our culture has waved so much over the last, just say 150 years ago when German liberalism came in, uh, all the great seminaries on the East Coast became poisoned and, and given to this liberalism. Uh, many of them, I should say. Even William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army there in the UK, said around the turn of last century, so about 120 years ago, he said this, the chief danger of the 20th century will be a religion without the Holy Spirit, a Christianity without Christ, a forgiveness without repentance, a salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and a heaven without a hell. Now, is that about as near to prophetic as could come? Of course, he wasn't speaking prophetically, but he was speaking as one that saw the culture and the drift and where things were moving. And that's where we find ourselves, brethren. No doubt, difficult days lie ahead for anyone that seeks to stand up for truth, that seeks to preach the uncompromised purity of the gospel of Christ. True Christians are hated in our society. More and more, even in the last five to ten years, just think of it. We are maligned. We are hated. We are mocked. Members of biblical churches have one great need, to be more courageous than ever to any who oppose the purity of the gospel of Christ. In fact, just think in the last three years, think of the last three years, what we've been through really around the world, but in the U.S. and especially in the state of California, during COVID-19, right? Tyrannical government agencies tried to come with their authority to shut down the Church of Christ. Can you imagine such absurdity? But those weak churches, some I just heard, just started to resume meeting, if you can believe that. So they remain members of churches through video, how do you do church and discipleship like that if you're not meeting in person? How can you be fed from a two-dimensional image rather than the live preaching of the Word of God? And just last week, many churches, even in our area, many of the large mega churches that house tens of thousands of professing Christians decided that they're going to shut down the Lord's Day. Can you imagine such a thing? Because of what? Christmas, a man-made holiday, 
something we're not commanded to celebrate at all in the Word of God. The irony is, is Jesus Christ is the very reason we meet on the Lord's Day. He rose from the dead on the Lord's Day. This is why we meet together, to feed on Christ, to glorify Christ, to give Him the adoration that is due His holy name. In the UK, just last week, a little longer introduction than normal, I know. Uh, In the UK, just last week, a woman was arrested for standing outside of an abortion clinic not saying a word, just quietly standing there. Because they have passed laws now that you're, they're, there's, per, there's safe zones around abortion clinics that you're not allowed to get too close, and especially if you're a Christian. She was arrested, she was searched, I read the video, or watched the video, <laughs> I read the story, and then later the videos came out of her even testifying of how she was taken to police headquarters released at night, six miles from where she was at, with not offered a ride or anything, because she might have been praying silently in her head. Do you see where this is going? Do you, do you see what government agencies are trying to do? Now they're trying to tell you that you just committed a thought crime, and they want to tell you how to think. Canada, one-year-old, the new anti-conversion Law, one of our sister churches in RBNet is in Toronto. Chris Powell, he's preached here back in 2019. Um, but they're in the thick of this. Anti-conversion law was passed in December 2021. It's called Bill C-4. You can get two to five years in prison if you're a therapist, a pastor, or a counselor for conducting conversion therapy. Now, we want to see people converted, right? <laughs> we want to see people converted to Christ. But, and, and, and they define it by, it means a practice of treatment or service designed to, and it's very particular, listen to these, a change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual. Notice it doesn't go the other way. Um, a change of a person's gender identity to cisgender. A change of a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to them at their birth, a repress or reduce of non-heterosexual attraction to se- or sexual behavior, a repress of a person's non-cisgender gender identity. And you know what? When you speak up against all of this type of stuff, and you're going to be one that, that stands up for the truth to represent God, to be an Elijah to King Ahab, right? That wicked government of his day, there will be consequences. And the consequences is often suffering, isn't it? And so we need to be prepared. First, to not be ashamed of the gospel. Second, be prepared to endure suffering. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. The substance of our text is actually only going to be one verse, but I'm going to read the surrounding context for us. And the title of the message is, Do Not Be Ashamed of the Gospel. 2 Timothy 1, reading verses 5 to 14. Uh, Our text will be verse 8. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, young Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. 
For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with the holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed at the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought to life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me, and in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard, guard, Timothy, through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. There's so much there. I, I just kind of want to comment on every verse because it stays connected. But our focus will be verse 8. But let's ask God's help first. Our Father, we do thank you so much for the freedoms that we still enjoy to be able to meet together now, to not have soldiers and government at the door knocking doors down, at least not yet. We thank you for this great privilege. Lord, would you give the true church, O church, arise, I think, of the Getty song. Would you give the true church boldness that they would arise and stand strong in these dark days and even to be prepared to suffer Oh, Lord, give us understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, this is the last letter the Apostle Paul wrote. He's facing execution. He is in a, a, a Roman prison, chained to Roman guards. And he's reflecting and reminiscing, as any one of us would do if we were in similar position and he says in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I continually remember you, Timothy, in my prayers day and night, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. You see, there's such an affection to his, as it were, his son in the faith, to Timothy, who in Acts 16 became a follower of Christ under Paul's ministry and for 30 years was groomed and mentored and, and loved. And, and now he's left Timothy and corrupt Ephesus to continue the work of the ministry. And Paul, his spiritual father, in a sense, is, is, is reflecting on all of those years that they had together and even recalling Timothy's tears. We don't know when exactly that was, but he's reflecting on that. But he's also mindful that dark days are among, around Timothy and so he gives them these clarion calls to retain sound words, to guard through the Holy Spirit, to, to not be ashamed of the testimony of Christ or of me, his prisoner. He, he's giving, as it were, a last will and testament or a, a personal letter, but it's, it's really his last will and testament to his dear protege of the faith and exhorting him to these things. He's convinced to the sincere faith 
And, and, and what Timothy needs is not a new spiritual gift, but to, as it says in verse 6 there, to kindle afresh the gift that's already in you through the laying on of hands. And so it's like when you have the fireplace, you know, you don't cheat with the gas, um, your gas, right? And it's like us, we're on our knees with newspaper and little kindling. What do you do when the fire begins to go out? You kindle it afresh. That's what Timothy needs. And then he says, God has not given us a spirit of timidity. That Greek word, uh, it means a lack of mental or moral strength to be given to cowardice. And he reminds him that, no, he's given us power and love and discipline. So Timothy was beginning to become timid. And so what Paul does is, is gives a call to perseverance. Perseverance in the truth and the proclamation of the gospel. So we're going to look at just verse 8 under two main simple points. Don't be ashamed of your Lord. And secondly, embrace suffering for the sake of the kingdom. So first, let's look at this first half of the verse. It says, therefore. What's the, there, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, it's, it's very much connected with verse 7. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. In light of this, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. What should we do with the gospel? It's to not be ashamed of it. And really, the flip side of that is what? Be proud of the gospel. This is true truth. And this word that he uses here is 11 times in the, in the New Testament, but three times in this chapter. And we've already read it in verse 12 <clears throat> for this reason. I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. Down in verse 16, we'll say it again. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. The word means to experience a painful feeling or a sense of loss of status. It's a word that's associated with being afraid, feeling shame, that prevents one from doing something, a reluctance to say or to do something because of fear or humiliation, experiencing a lack of courage to stand up. It's a very appropriate word, isn't it? And that's a a packed lexicon definition from BDAG. In particular, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our witness is about the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.6, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. So we see this testimony of Christ throughout the Bible. Jesus, of course, was a religious leader put to death as a criminal by Romans, right? Rejected by the Jewish leaders that should have openly accepted him and saw that he was Messiah, but they rejected him. And our message is about this one a, a Messiah that, that they would say is dead, but we know he's alive, right? And we're mocked and we're maligned for that. The gospel minister is not to be promoting his own legacy, as you see so much today, or his lifestyle or his own culture, but a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're to promote. Do not be ashamed of the testimony concerning our Lord is explained by, but join with me in suffering hardship for the sake of the gospel. Paul is writing, as I said, 
well, I didn't say the year, but roughly AD 66, um, very common. Christian, the, the, the Nero persecution of which we touched on so many times in our exposition through the book of Hebrews um, was one that was alive and well, and it was very common for Christians that took the name of Christ to suffer, to be persecuted, and even to be killed. So you picture Timothy in Ephesus, right? A city full of idols and heretics and, and, and many that were mocking Christianity. Timothy's probably in his mid-30s, relatively young uh, to be a minister uh, with that type of responsibility. But so what he's saying is, do not be ashamed of your testimony of the Lord, Timothy. We can't be certain, but perhaps, Timothy, the persecution was getting so heated that he began to compromise the message. Maybe a little less mention of sin and hell, perhaps maybe not touching on election and those types of things. Uh, perhaps he was becoming timid. Jesus says in Matthew ten nineteen. but when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. You see, what we need and what Timothy needed was the courage of Polycarp. You remember Polycarp? He was a disciple of, of the apostle John. So early in the first century, as he was facing martyrdom, and they said, all you have to do is deny Christ, and we will not kill you. And what does he say? Eighty and six years I have served him. He's never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? That's the kind of courage we need, brothers and sisters. Even in our day, you think about the cultural perversions and the competing worldviews that are all around us, everywhere around us. I'll just mention a few. The gender dysphoria, it's at all-time heights right now. It is clear as day from the Word of God that God created one man and one woman. There are two genders, man and woman. But now we're being told, I don't know, maybe the number's gone up, 36 genders. And you can be this or that or this modification or that modification. And, and it has nothing to do with what you were assigned at birth, right? Do you see the utter absurdity of this? How about critical theory? Insufficient, self-critical, total worldview or a neo-Marxism, which takes even terms that we would use biblically and recreates them. So creation, we believe in creation, they say it's a self-creation, right? Sin is to be part of the repressive patriarchy and its family and work. Their justice is a social justice, making the oppressor the oppressed. And a salvation is a liberation from God's order. You see the the perversion that's there. Postmodernism, which is fading away, but certainly there's still many that embrace it where there's no absolute truth whatsoever. You can't know absolute truth. You just make up your own truth, right? Moralism, sadly, even from the pulpit, um, you can do it, right? You just add these reforms to your life and God will be pleased with you. Dare to be a Daniel, you know, these types of things. And so many will go to hell with the knowledge of the gospel but trusting in their own efforts of how they live their lives. Therapeutic preaching instead of theological preaching, meeting the felt needs and trying to make people to feel good. You see, what is needed is a gospel-centered courage 
that drives us to excel all the more for God's glory. Remember the words of Paul in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Consider what Jesus said in the context of the discipleship in Mark 8 and 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And that it's just amazing that the Son of God calls his generation an adulterous and sinful generation. What is our generation? The same thing. So what this means is you men standing up when your coworker wants to show you a little clip of some porn that they watched or something like that and say, I will not defile my eyes by looking at that. I want to be a man of integrity before a holy God. Or those of you women, perhaps, you, you know, gossip is dangerous both ways. Just to even listen to it, you're, you're just as guilty as the one that's speaking it. But when somebody begins to say that, I will not defile my ears with this type of conduct. It's an upright living for the glory of God. <clears throat> Secondly, under this head, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of Christ or of me, his prisoner. So I've entitled this subpoint: don't be ashamed of godly pastors and missionaries. The great apostle is about to be executed as a criminal by Roman authorities. Paul is not residing in a villa there on, on the coast of, of Rome in his retirement years, sipping a martini in a lounge chair. He's chained to Roman guards. He also, on his back, would bear all the marks of the beatings that he's received from a life of faithfulness, of serving the Lord, and speaking up for him, Galatians 6.17, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. You want proof? Rip off the shirt and show the back, right? So it's, it's remarkable to me that, that the perspective of Paul here at the very end of his life, uh, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me, his prisoner. Notice his is capitalized referring to Christ, the testimony of Christ, his prisoner. Why is he a prisoner of Christ? I thought, he was, I thought he was in a Roman cell. He doesn't say I'm a prisoner of Nero. He doesn't say I'm a prisoner of the, the, the Roman government. He doesn't say any of that. But his perspective is such that I am the Lord's prisoner. He says, similar in Ephesians 3.1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. See, Paul was not some, you know, whatever you want to fill in the blank, Arnold Schwarzenegger with charisma and that kind of thing. In fact, history tells us that he was short in nature, right, and stature, and perhaps walked with a hunched back from being beaten so many times. But the gospel messenger, as he was mocked sitting in prison, was not ashamed of his Christ and his Savior. On an earlier imprisonment um, in, in Philippians, uh, he says this in chapter 1 and verse 12, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment 
in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Paul being in prison like this in his testimony of being the Lord's prisoner, what did it do? It gave courage to others to speak the truth. Now, if we're honest, we've all failed at different times, being ashamed of Christ and not speaking up. And we all know that feeling of when we leave a particular encounter or situation to where immediately conviction comes. Why didn't I say this? Why didn't I stand up for that? Am I the only one? I'm the only one. Okay. <laughs> we all know that. Uh, and and, it's, and we, what we need is boldness. But we need to rest in the, in the finished work of Christ, of course. Like the hymn says, Bold shall I stand in that great day, for who ought to my charge lay, fully absolved through these I am, from sin and fear and guilt and shame. Well, secondly, second half of the verse, embrace suffering for the sake of the kingdom of God. There's a shift in the sentence here, right? There's a shift to, to a strong positive exhortation that reads this. First of all, the Allah, the but right there, right? It's a contrast. But join with me in suffering for the gospel. And notice, according to the power of God. Paul tells Timothy, join with me. Share with me in this suffering. You see, Timothy must be willing to be harshly treated along with Paul. He must be willing to share in the persecution. This is not by his own power. That would be impossible, but it's according to the power of God. This is the first of 33 imperatives, commands that occur in this short uh, book of four chapters. And and here it's it's an aorist imperative. It's a double compound word, and and it's it's packed full of meaning. It, It pictures... An intimate union, because it has the prefix, son, it's together with, it's often used of us, together with Christ. So they they would put that at the beginning, and then it's this compound word, which means to suffer evil, kakopatho, joined together in a compound. It's a word that he would use several times, again, through here. Look down in chapter 2 and verse 9, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. In reality, we are so weak. We, we have not the strength in our own. We're, we're weak clay pots. And, and, and in Timothy 2, with mounting persecution, may have been afraid to continue preaching the purity of the gospel. His fears may have been based on the fact that he sees other believers and even as his great mentor and father in the faith in prison. But he needs to be reminded what Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so all of this, even suffering for the gospel, it's according to the power of God. Clearly, Paul's suffering had, it was because of the gospel. Look down in, in verse 10, but now revealed by the appearing of the Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought immortality to light through the gospel. Chapter 2 and verse 3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 
Paul calls Timothy to share in his own supreme desire for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Or later in Philippians, he would say that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the what? Fellowship of his sufferings. Paul's supreme desire did not prove to make him regret it at the end of his life, right? These are the very things that should inspire us as as it inspired Timothy. A disciple is not above his master. In this world, you will have persecution. The great reformer, Martin Luther, reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church of Christ. He actually, as he was drawing up in preparation of the Osberg Confession, he similarly defines the church as a community of those, quote, who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. See, discipleship means allegiance to the very sufferings of Christ. Isaac Watts, um, I'd requested we sing this hymn, but I'm going to read this, this portion of it. Am I a soldier of the cross? Am I a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies of flowery ease, flowery beds of ease, while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Sure, I must fight. I would reign, increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, I'll endure the pain, supported by your word. Just even reading those words bring conviction. Now, we want to mark this out. The first Peter passage was read for a couple of reasons. Obviously, the first few verses and the last verse. But I also want to just point this out, that there's nothing noble about suffering for your own sin. Right? Don't say, woe is me, I'm suffering from Christ, if it's for your own sin. Peter says, make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not ashamed but is to glorify God in this name. There's nothing noble about suffering for your own foolishness. And he says at the end of that passage, entrusting our souls to the faithful creator to do what is right. John Spilsbury, one of the first pastors of uh, the particular Baptist church in London in the early 1600s, was confined for the testimony of Christ, and he bore this witness. He said, I shall not henceforth fear a prison as formerly, because I had so much of my heavenly Father's company as made it a palace for me. See what he's talking about is he had such sweet communion with the Lord. Uh, Another one had said in prison that that, um, he had such communion with Christ that even the prison that every little pebble and rock became rubies and jewels, and he felt he was with Christ in that communion. You see, we suffer for the gospel, but it's according to the power of God. And so much of that is wedded and united with the idea that we are in communion with God, united to Christ. Paul would say this of his thorn of the flesh. He said to me, after he's asked it to be removed, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, 
I would rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses and insults and distresses and persecutions and difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, that's a biblical mystery, isn't it? That strength comes through weakness, right? And look at Christ himself, a very meek man, but a man, a man's man, a man of strength, which Pilate said as he came out, behold the man. He was a man's man. You see, when you suffer for the gospel, remember that you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. There's a sanctifying effect to that. There's a a endurance that comes with that. Thomas Brooks, one of the Puritans, said this, stars shine brightest in the darkest night. Torches are better for the beating, a torch that's smoldering and you beat it and the flame kind of, it's that same idea of kindling afresh. Grapes come not to the proof till they come to the wine press and are crushed. Spices smell sweetest when they are pounded so that the aroma comes out. You see what he's saying there. Suffering brings out great things from us. The key is to rely on the supernatural power that comes from Jesus Christ. Paul's exhortation is based on enabling grace that comes only from him. That's why he calls him, join with me, come with me. Uh, It's suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. It's not just suffering for the gospel, period, but it's according to, it's, it's to the measure of the power of God and his enabling grace that he gives. <clears throat> Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, really an autobiography of his life, he says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Secondly here, you will suffer as you seek to live a godly life. Turn to chapter 3 and verse 12. There may be one or two of you here who are, uh, well, more than one or two, A few of you that are not truly converted, and so your desire is not to live a godly life, but most of us that are in Christ. And he says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus might be persecuted, may be persecuted if you're in the wrong neighborhood at the wrong time, will be persecuted. It should not come as a shock. In this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus said in the Upper Room Discourse. We shouldn't pretend or expect anything otherwise. Now, I realize those of us who are older, we've been living in the the prosperity and economic explosion of, of the Disneyland of America and this thing called the United States of America, detached from so many other countries where persecution is just part and parcel of the Christian life. We need to wake up. We need to smell the coffee that things are changing They are rapidly changing, and we need to prepare. Teach us to trust and rely on the name of Jesus and to find power and and hope through God. We have the promise, 1 Peter 5.10, after you have suffered for a little while, 
the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory will himself, what? Perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He will make your feet strong so that you will stand in that day. Annie Flint was a hymn writer, wrote over 6,000 hymns. Um, She was an orphan. She lived with crippling arthritis. She was stricken with cancer. And yet her faith was especially evident in this hymn. He gives more grace as the burdens grow great. He sends more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he adds his mercy to multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. That's something we all can see that we should be able to own, and it's, it's a picture of how little Annie was conformed to the very image of Christ. D.A. Carson said, The staying power of our faith is neither demonstrated nor developed until it is tested by suffering. Horatius Bonar, great Scottish preacher, said affliction is the shaking of a torch that it may blaze all the brighter. So, brethren, we live in dark days. We must not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. We need to be proud of the gospel, if I might put it that way. We need to embrace that, but then also to know suffering is inevitable If we're doing these things, if we're standing up, if we're speaking the truth, there will be some type of suffering. As we conclude, just a couple points of application, a couple questions. Um, When was the last time you were ashamed of the gospel? What did that look like? Where were you at? Maybe your workplace? Maybe, Maybe you're one of the ones with our team that goes to Planned Parenthood, and the Antifa gets into your face, and they began just cussing and, and causing you to perhaps even question why you're even there. We must resist being cowards and stand up for what is right. We need to defend both the cause and the very character of Christ. Why? Because he's worthy, right? But isn't that what discipleship is? We're following our Savior. The cause and character of Christ should be treasured something that we're willing to stand up for. A Christian being ashamed of the Lord is caused by a sinful self-interest, right? A self-preservation, as it were. I don't want to get into conflict with this person, so I'll keep my mouth shut. A person that is unwilling to suffer the price for being a disciple should not be a disciple. Jesus says in another place, Matthew 10, Therefore, anyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So as you have that communion, as you enjoy that union with Christ, as you are in your daily prayer time and in the Word daily, make it a part of your prayer Lord, give me boldness to live with a true godly fear of you, to stand up for your cause. And and this comes about by being under the means of grace, right? Being amongst the the community of, of the church, 
um, being under the preaching of the Word of God and the fellowship of the saints and even the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it comes from a meditating and a, and a reading upon the Word of God. We are fortified. We are strengthened when that happens. Verse 12, 112 here, For this reason also I suffer these things, and I am not ashamed. Why? For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. I know whom I have believed. Right? Polycarp, he's 86 years. He's never done me any harm or injury whatsoever. How can I deny him and blaspheme his name? Paul We're to endure suffering, looking to this eternal reward. Um, Even Paul says that at the end of verse 12 there, that I'm convinced, I've entrusted to him until what is that day, that final day when we'll see him face to face or when he comes back. Romans 8 and verse 16 and 17, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. If children, heirs, right? We have an inheritance Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. I have to say that trials and difficulties and suffering, even in my own Christian life of 30 plus years, has shaped my character more than anything else. We should not run for that. We should should be repulsed by a quote, gospel message that says God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and never ever to have a, uh, a, any suffering whatsoever. I saw a clip of Kenneth Copeland. I don't know how that guy's still alive, but here he was. There's these, uh, I don't, <laughs> I mean, remember what he was saying, away with you, COVID-19, and, and then there was this whole song, and that didn't go so well. It lasted another two years. But this, he's talking about the bald men. Now, put your hands on your head. Say, hair grow! Hair grow! It's, it's just so cultish. Like, God doesn't want you to be bald, so let's command God to make hair grow. It's just ridiculous. Um, we should embrace the suffering, obviously. <laughs> we, we want minimal suffering, but when it does come, we should embrace it and ask God for grace to be able to get through it. Stephen Charnock, um, in his great existence and attributes of God, says this on suffering. The church never was was so like heaven as when it was most persecuted by hell. The storms often cleansed it, and the lance often made it more healthful. Job's integrity had not been so clear nor his patience so illustrious had not the devil been permitted to afflict him. Right? That's true. Read the book of Job. His integrity, his patience really just shines through that only by the grace of God. Well, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I implore you, come to Christ. Why not? Why? Begin this year as a child of God. Look in verse 9. He says, by the way, even as Paul just mentioned suffering of the gospel according to the power of God, he's like, oh, the gospel, it's glorious. And look at what he says, who saved us, 
rescued us, right? That was last week's message, rescue. Saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. You see, if you're not a Christian, you don't want to pack up your suitcases of good works and come to the Lord and say, I'm here, Lord, look at all the good things I've done. Here, let me show you one by one all of these good things and all my volunteer hours. Away with such things. Throw away, leave behind any things that you would even think is a good work and come to him in humble repentance, begging him for his mercy. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Those are the words of a humble, contrite sinner coming to God. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Come to him, begging him for his mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of these truths. Lord, would you cause the church to arise, to be strengthened, to be bold. Lord, may we cherish this, the purity of the gospel message. May we not be ashamed, O oh God. Indeed, help us to remember even this, these very things throughout this year. No doubt, persecutions new pandemics, whatever, recessions, all of this is going to come, and, and we're the enemies of this culture. Lord, give us boldness. Give us courage. Give us each other to help encourage and to strengthen one another. We know that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Make this year marked by unity and spiritual growth, Lord, unto the end, that Christ would receive all the glory that is due his name. We thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.